a card-carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Just the next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast, your crash course of the major themes from our two-hour program, Wharton Moneyball, which you can hear live on Wednesdays in the morning from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Time. I'm Professor Adi Weiner. I'm a co-host and collaborator and a professor of statistics at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm here today to break down our top takeaways from our previous week's show. We had a really interesting guest. We had Mike Sexton, who's a World Poker Tour commentator, very well known. He's also a Hall of Fame poker player and the author of a new book called Life's a Gamble. And he was our guest this week. We also had a full complement of hosts, my co-hosts. Kate Massey, Eric Bradlow, and Shane Jensen were all in the studio, and we had some interesting conversations. So let's go to our very first clip, which is about James Harden. I, I would say for me, James Harden's historic yeah. game mm-hmm. was, and I'll just let everyone know, 53 points, 16 rebounds, and 17 assists. Yeah. 53 Can you put points. that into context for us? What is that? In terms of historic games, what makes it, what aspect of it is particularly Well, so historic? people have looked at a couple things there. So it's not exactly the right math, but I can tell you the exact math in a second. But if you just take 53 points and add 2 times 17, you know, his assists, that's 87 points. Now, it turns out a bunch of those were threes. So he was actually involved in 94 points for his given team, which I think ranked the second all time. I mean, they actually had yep. a list of the greatest games of all time in some sense ranked according to a number of metrics. And this game was kind of like the second greatest game of all time. It was wow. also the highest number, second highest, tied for the highest number of points ever in a triple-double. So, you know, he had triple-double in points, rebounds, and assists. He tied Will Chamberlain, who had a 53-point triple-double game as well. So this was just measured by everybody as one of the historically great games. And the other thing that made me amazed about that, it made me look a little bit deeper into the Rockets. So we all won't surprise anybody here that the Golden State Warriors have the best point differential in the league. And by the way, by about five points. So if you thought last year's team was great... What was their point differential last year? It's about 13, right? It was about... Right. right, It wasn't until the end. It slipped to about 11. It's a 12.5 right now. Mm -hmm. The next nearest team is 7.7, which is the Houston Rockets. It's not the San Antonio Spurs. It's not the Cleveland Cavaliers. It's the Houston Rockets, followed then by the Toronto Raptors. You got it. There's Eric's take on James Harden's absolutely historic game. That's a game he had 53 points, 16 rebounds, and 17 assists. And by interesting analytical metrics, it really was one of the all-time great games. Um Interesting about the NBA, I mean, we're seeing more and more spread. You have dominant teams like the Warriors and this year the Rockets, and then, of course, really weak ones perennially, the Philadelphia 76ers. We'll see what comes of that. And now we're going to take our turn into uh, the world of poker, and let's listen to Mike Sexton. When you sit down at a table, do you 
tend to play more conservatively when you start out, as do many people, just because you want to learn the play of the other people when you're not playing with familiar players? Is there a change in strategy as you go more and more hands? Or you could uh, you could counter-argue that maybe a more you know taking more chances lets you learn faster about your opponents. Yeah, how, how, do, you, how do you structure your play as you're trying to learn other players? No, I take the conservative route. I would suggest anyone else takes the conservative route as well when you first sit down in the game. It shouldn't take you but 30 minutes at the most to really learn the playing style of the players at the table, like who the real aggressive players are, who the tight players are. And it's much easier to play when you know the tendencies of the players at the table. Mm-hmm. Mike, you, know, the, you guys weren't playing Hold'em, I'm guessing, when you first started playing on Ohio State or North Carolina. What were the dominant games back then? No, well, it's funny you ask that because I even read my book uh, – when, when I played in the home games in North Carolina, we had a rule down there for most of the games. If you could explain it, you could deal it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's fun. So we had all kinds of wild card games and crisscross and replace a card. And, and really, it was that variety of games, I think, that makes you a much better player. And nowadays, you know, many players just play No Limit Hold'em, the game they see on television. But in truth, poker is a combination of many kinds of poker games. And it's much more fun, I think, to play a variety of games when you're playing poker. So... Uh, all the high stakes game in Vegas and elsewhere, for example, are mixed games. What they call mixed games, where you'll right. play a high low split game, you'll play stud, you'll play pot lemon Omaha, you'll play some hold'em, but you'll mix it up. And so, you know, you might play eight or ten hands of one game and then switch to another game for eight or ten hands, and uh, that's the way they do it. So it, it just it relieves the boredom in one game, and uh, you think some players at the table may have a weakness in another game, and so you always want to rotate the games around where you might, you know. Uh, get weaknesses of other players and but it just primarily it's just more fun to play more games. Well, that was Mike Sexton. He began with an interesting uh take on how much time you have to spend to learn the attributes of your of the your, your opponents. I mean, poker is an amazing game because it's it's uh, a classic example of learning your opponents' weaknesses and strengths is essential to being a good player. You're not playing the cards, you're playing your opponents. And that's extremely important. It's a really extremely important life lesson, business lesson. Look at who you're dealing with, what their strengths and weaknesses are, and that's how you ta- t- you tailor your strategy. And he gives you about 30 minutes to get that done. There's a classic saying in poker, if you don't know who the fish is at the table, which is code for the weakest player, then you're the fish. And um, then he had to, a, a digression, I guess, to talk about the different types of games and, and, and how they're played. Let's go on to another... Um, Another take from Mike, Mike Sexton, World Poker Tour commentator and Hall of Fame poker player. He's going to talk about the uh, Texas Hold'em and how it rose to popularity. Mike, the, we've talked about when you first started going that the game wasn't Hold'em, that it was more mixed, and now Hold'em's really taken over the world. What's behind? Why did that happen? Well, it happened because that's the game they played in the World Championship of Poker when it got started uh, back in 1970. And so now almost every poker tournament has a series of events leading up to a championship event. And, and the championship event uh, is No Limit Hold'em in virtually every case. So uh, the event that they put on television uh, on the World Poker Tour was No Limit Hold'em. It's the simplest game for people to understand when they're watching. Uh, they might not know much about poker, but when they're watching somebody says, I'm all in, that means they know that he's betting all his chips. And if he loses the pot, he's going to be out. So it's that kind of drama and reality TV that's exciting when people watch on television when they're playing for a million dollars. So, uh, you know, 
people can't figure out why poker might be so popular on television. The truth is, it's reality TV at its finest. It's real people that are playing for real money. It's life-changing money in many cases. Right. And the drama of the turn of a card and the excitement that could change that person's life uh, is exciting to watch. So the question that Cade set up was why did Texas Hold'em poker take off to be the dominant game that it is today on television? And and Mike kind of sidestepped the question a little bit. He answered it in part having to do with its no-limit quality. So a no-limit poker game is a game where you can bet all your chips up to as much as you want, from as little to as, well, the little, there's a minimum bet to a, a maximum bet. Uh, being everything that you have. And in a typical limit game, there's there's a step to gradations. There's a maximum amount you can bet, sort of big bet sizes. And uh, the no-limit format is extremely exciting, and that's a great format for television. So because the no-limit Texas Hold'em game became synonymous with the big World Series of Poker championship, No Limit is very, very exciting for the public to watch. No Limit. Why it has to be Texas Hold'em, I'm not really sure we heard the answer to, um, but I guess we did hear that the answer is the No Limit aspect, which is extremely exciting. It is reality tea in its most real. Real money, real people, life-changing money. So let's go to our next clip, which is Mike again talking about um, uh, poker, but in relation to a, a topic which is very dear to my heart, which is the proportion of skill and luck in a game. Mike, we talk a lot on the show about skill versus luck, and uh, we sometimes bring in poker, but we talk about it in golf and football and basketball. People debate this some in, in poker. What's your sense of skill versus luck in poker? I believe poker is about 70% skill and 30% luck. It has the exact right combination of luck and skill in my mind to make it such a great game. And it is a great game because anybody can win at it. And that's the beauty of poker, honestly. I mean, we could never go on the golf course and be Roy McIlroy or Tiger Woods or playing an NBA game, most of us. But uh, the truth is you can sit down with the world champion of poker and beat him if cards fall your way. Now, obviously, we know over the course of time that the best players win the money in poker, and skill prevails. And skill is the dominant factor in poker. But because of the luck factor, you know, it is a great game, and anybody can win in a given hand, in a given session, in a given tournament. And that's the beauty of the game. Okay, so Mike is answering the age-old question, what percentage of a game is skill and what percentage is chance? The problem with the formulation is that it is not precise enough to answer in a consistent way that's genuinely meaningful. So let's try to put it into context. What what Mike is telling us is that he believes that 70% of poker's outcome is determined by skill and 30% is determined by chance. It doesn't really mean anything to me to say that because you have to make it more precise mathematically. So let's give it a shot. And let's actually use Mike's lead. He talks about getting together a sort of an amateur sitting down and playing with a top player. Now, you wouldn't do that in golf. You would, an amateur player would never expect to even have a, a, a chance in, in, in a million of beating Rory McIlroy and even a round of golf. You wouldn't sit down and play the world's top tennis player. You wouldn't play, play Roger Federer, even a, a point, and expect to win. And that's probably true in, in, in sports which, which are 100% or nearly 100% skill. But poker is not. So what does that mean? Perhaps it means that if I sat down with maybe Mike Sexton in a hand of poker or even a round of poker, I might have a 30% chance of beating him. Let's, let's, let's give it that, in, that interpretation. So a great player, when, when playing against a decent player, not, a, not an expert by any means, not a professional, 
but someone who knows the rules um, might have, say, a 70% chance of winning, which means that the outcome of any given hand, perhaps any given round, is more determined by the skill of the player than chance, but that does give really anyone the opportunity to win, and that's what makes it gambling. That's, in fact, the definition of gambling, is when anyone feels they can win against any person. A game you wouldn't gamble over tennis because it's so skill-determined. Um, and the more of that outcome is determined by chance means that the more likely it is for a unknowledgeable um, beginner-level or amateur-level player uh, performer could defeat a top player. So I think that's the, that's what's happening over here. It's something that I've actually written extensively about. I was the expert in, in poker stars. I was an expert in some legal cases involving um, uh, fantasy sports. And what these cases all turn on that question, what is the proportion of skill and chance? It's not well defined, but we're starting to flesh out some answers. And let's, let's go to our very last clip, which is a discussion, not with Mike, but about Hall of Fame. In the long list of things that are crazy about how we decide on Hall of Fame, this is yet another crazy thing. Although we do like the fact that in baseball, it really matters. Baseball membership of the Hall of Fame among players is something people really, really think about. Really, so more than other sports. Oh, I think so. Vastly. Why? Well, I think uh, a the proportion. I, I, I just think. It is very, very hard to get into the Hall of Fame. The standards, for whatever reason, set by, you know, the the kind of historical, conventional standards set by these sports is is a very high. Although I would argue that the NFL Hall of Fame is harder to get into. I mean, if you just look at the people not in the NFL Hall of Fame, like, for example, given just his numbers, would you understand why Terrell Owens, based purely on his numbers— how can that man, maybe he'll get into the Hall of Fame this year, but he's not in the Hall of Fame. He has the second most receiving yards all time, like third or four most catches. No one, maybe no one. Yeah, but again, I think that's more of a political thing as well. No, no, I no. guess I definitely no, dis- but I'm just believe saying, he deserves Bill to be in the Hall of Fame. Just got just got into the Hall. I mean, just recently. I mean, guys, is it a smaller percentage? It's a much smaller percentage. Is it, well, baseball's about five percent of of players make the Hall of Fame. I think for baseball, because really? baseball has that individual component that's so isolated, this yeah. is so thing. measurable. Yeah, I agree that it's, it matters. It's, it's mean, more diagnostic, basically. Yeah, so, yeah. so, and so for the skill chance thing we were talking about, consider the NFL. A guy, you know, Philip Rivers. Yeah, I don't know if he's Hall of Fame or not, but that guy's been a, a, lousy, a lousy team his entire career, yep. and it will be held against him because the stats will look worse we'll look as a result That's of right. who he's surrounded by. Okay, so as we head into Baseball Hall of Fame season and Football Hall of Fame season, we actually asked the question up front, well, which sport is it harder to get into and which sport does it matter more? The conventional wisdom, which I think all of us agreed, and we heard from all four of us during that clip, is that baseball is the preeminent Hall of Fame, and we're not really sure why. We, we tapped on two possible reasons. Shane postulated perhaps it was that baseball is harder to get into and it very well might be you have to have not only a long career but you have to be you know exquisitely talented over that long career but eric countered by observing that uh football is um is is actually i think in pure numbers even harder to get into and he listed a number of extremely highly regarded players and coaches who are not in the hall of fame or are not yet in the hall of fame and then cade kind of summed it up accurately by by saying that baseball is very very uh, um isolatable you can you can use the word diagnostic but i think really what he meant was analytical in the sense that you can evaluate a, a player's performance over his lifetime career very very precisely 
and that football has a component that's unmeasurable. You didn't really say it's skill necessarily chance, but context matters. And Phil Rivers is a perfect example where he simply was not with winning teams. And, and it's therefore hard to precisely evaluate what the contribution of an individual player has been when you have to study it in the context of the great influence of the teammates on individual performance. Baseball is so preeminent because it is what I like to call the beautiful amalgam between an Olympic competition at individual level and a team sport. It actually has both of those components highly, highly um, pronounced. And so you have an individual component, highly measurable, and that's where the Hall of Fame comes in. And no other team sport, American-based team sport, um, has such a clear measure of quality that and that even is in, comes close to what's possible in baseball. Well, that concludes our edition of our Moneyball post-game podcast. If you want to hear the full show, it's available for download on SoundCloud and at the Apple Store under podcasts. Please don't forget to check out our live show on Wednesday mornings from 8 to 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM's business radio channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball postgame podcast. And until then, enjoy your sports and enjoy your stats.